Well, the forests in California and in Oregon and Washington, where we look, are conserved as well-managed forests. They are resilient. They provide connected habitat corridors across the landscape. They are sequestering large amounts of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They're teeming with fish and wildlife. They support rural communities with a sustained rural economy that is based on stewarding those forests. And they continue to provide ample, cool, clean water for all of us. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, along with my co-host, Vernice Miller-Travis. Our topic today is a continuation of one started in Infinite Earth Radio, episode number 23 with Lewis Bloomberg. Ecosystem Service Values and Natural Solutions to Climate Change. If you haven't listened to that episode, you definitely want to check it out. We also want to remind folks about the second California Adaptation Forum, which is coming up. The event brings together over a thousand leaders, practitioners, and advocates gathered to discuss, debate, and consider how we most effectively respond to the impacts of climate change. The forum will take place September 7th through 8th, 2016 in Long Beach, California. Registration opened in mid-June. Please visit CaliforniaAdaptationForum.org to learn more. Our guest today is Lori A. Weyburn, and she's the co-founder and co-CEO and president of Pacific Forest Trust. Lori is an accomplished forest and conservation innovator who advises policymakers at the state, regional, national, and international levels. Lori, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. We like to share with our listeners the stories of people who have committed their professional lives to public service. Lori, can you tell us about the moment you realized forests and natural resource conservation would be your life's work? I think it's a, a series of moments, really. I grew up out of the doors with my family, going out into the wilds of the West early on, and that certainly ingrained in me a, a love of nature. But I think the evolution happened for me when I decided that I really could make a difference by joining the United Nations. And I did. I went over to work with a young program called the United Nations Environment Program. UNESCO. Uh, United Nations Environment Program, UNEP. UNEP, yes, UNEP. UNEP. And its name in French uh, comes up with the, uh, with, with the acronym of a tire, pneu. Programme Nations Unies pour l'Environnement. And whenever we felt that it wasn't working well, we would say it was a pneu crevé, which is to say a flat tire. But um, <laughs> it was a great experience. But it was there. I was at the young headquarters in Kenya. And I think what evolved for me was not so much a life of conservation and forests, but a life seeking to help 
define and then sustain a different balance with nature and how we all get what we need, if you will, without depriving others of getting what they need, whether those others were other people or other species, and how we could redefine our relationship with nature, which is, which is where we come from and which is what we are part of, in such a way that really the diversity of life could thrive. Lori, you were quoted in Harvard Magazine. I think Harvard's your alma mater. You were quoted as saying, Nature is central to our emotional, physical, and spiritual wealth and well-being. A central motivating force for me in this work is creating a resonance with a part of our lives at a very basic economic level, building an understanding that nature is where our wealth comes from. Can you elaborate on what you mean by wealth? Well, I was careful to both include spiritual and physical as well as economic wealth. And what I mean by wealth is abundance and thriving. And whether it is our actual health, which we know that being in forests, for example, increases our immune. It is both scientifically and empirically shown that being in forests makes you feel better. And it does. And it, it really does raise the body's own ability to fight infection and disease. So that's, that's a form of wealth and health. Whether it's inspiration, we know that when human beings look at big trees, they just get inspired. Big old trees just have a very, very deep influence on our lives. And then Straight ahead, financial wealth. We have for centuries derived wealth from the cultivation and harvest of trees within forests, the cultivation and harvest of edible goods from forests, the cultivation and harvest of fiber from forests. So from a very basic survival level through to some of the biggest fortunes in this country and in others, those come from forests and nature. And when we lose the tie back to where we come from and what we are part of, we don't thrive. So tell us a little bit about the Pacific Forest Trust and what your mission is. So this is a, this is a grand experiment in seeing if there are ways that, in fact, we can have that, that triple bottom line, that triple win relationship with nature. And our big mission is to sustain America's forests for all their public benefits of wood, water, wildlife, and well-being in cooperation with landowners, managers, and communities. But a central tenet for us, a central philosophy for us, is derived from jujitsu, which is if you can work with the force that's coming at you and just turn it in the direction that you really want it to go, you'll get there a whole lot faster. And what we saw was that so many environmental and conservation organizations accomplish their missions by fundamentally saying, no, you can't do this, you can't do that, keeping people out. And we looked at that and said, well, that's, that's certainly one way to go, and it's, it's been very successful at saving certain species from the brink of extinction. It's been very successful in establishing a lot of parks and protected areas. But it hasn't really taken hold in the way that private landowners manage their land. And so we looked at why that was. And the fact is that people earn money from producing timber or other forest products as quickly and as much as possible. 
which often can lead to degradation, or by converting that land to another use, be it agriculture or sprawling development or a road or whatever. That's how people earn money. And so we said, well, gosh, is there a way we can marry how people earn money with stewardship and protecting the public benefits of those forests? And so we really wanted to create an organization that pioneered and developed new sources of financial return for landowners who managed for the public benefit and stewarded and protected their forests. So that's the genesis of why we do what we do. So can you share with our listeners the extent of the drought and water crisis California and other Western states are facing? And is the persistent drought related to the wildfires raging more and more frequently? Is there a connection? You know, the West has a kind of a a triple threat happening right now. It's really the convergence of three big forces. One big force is climate change. The West has been drying for some time. If you look at California, if you look down in Southern California in the area that is now Los Angeles, a few thousand years ago, they got kind of double the rainfall we get today. That's why you had those wonderful rich swamps that then became the La Brea Tar Pits. You know, that you you have this abundance of life there in the age of the dinosaurs, a lot rainier, and then just coming up to the age of the sloths. And, you know, 25,000 years ago was a lot wetter. So, you know, 25,000, 15,000 years ago, we had about double the rainfall in California that we have today in Southern California. A significant drying trend has been rapidly accelerated with the rise of global warming and the increase in these global warming gases. But there has been a change in our climate that is accelerating. That's causing a lot of the West to experience kind of the whim-whams, very hot and dry, and then deluges of, of water. The second forest that's really hitting the West, and both wildlands and forests in particular, is that the type of management that we have practiced has left the forests fairly simplified and homogenous. And that means they're pretty vulnerable. They don't, they don't have the natural diversity that can combat stresses more effectively. We do know that the more natural a system is, the more resilient it is. And our forests in particular have been managed for a very simplified condition in many cases. And it's also in many cases, quite young and overcrowded. And then the third force is how we fragmented the landscape. The West is a fire-adapted system. So it has, you know, it's evolved with fire, both natural fire and fires set by generations of Native Americans. Control fires. Yeah, yeah. And they're they're semi-controlled in the sense that We like to think of a controlled burn as safe. You know, you have a certain area designated, and Native Americans tend to set fire and let it go. But you can't do that now because you have settlements throughout that landscape. And as a result, we've been fighting fires and fairly successfully suppressing them for over 75 years. So you have this convergence of a warming and drying climate and exacerbated drought as part of that warming and drying climate. You have very simplified systems that are less resilient, and then you have a very fragmented landscape with settlements all through it that you can't let fire go through and be safe. So that's a, that's a pretty explosive situation. These fires are an expression of what happens when you suppress fire for a long time and you have a fuel buildup, 
And then you have a warming, drying climate where you have less vegetation per acre being able to be supported than what's there. And then the fact that you have to keep fires out of a lot of areas. So looking at California as an example, where a significant percentage of the population lives in Southern California, but most of the water resources in the far northern part of the state. First of all, is that an accurate description of water availability and population? Absolutely. And does this create regional inequities in terms of accessing available fresh water sources? I hear, and I, I believe this to be true, but I think you would be able to answer. Are there really water wars happening in the West? There have been water wars in the West for a long time. You remember that phrase, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. Yep. And that's, that's absolutely the case. California is only one example, but it's a very developed and sophisticated example of taking water from one place and moving it to another. So California's water, you're correct, falls largely in the north, and that will be increasingly the case with climate change. In fact, there's only one part of the state that stays cooler and wetter under all the global climate change scenarios, and that is the core of the state's water system in the northeastern part of the state around Lakes Araville and Lake Shasta. The southern part of the state and all of the water systems there will have less water coming in in the form of precipitation. They'll have it in a less desirable time of the year. In other words, the hottest part of the year, they're not going to have precipitation even into April probably. And so you're, you're going to be needing water in those regions when there's less water available and the water storage is not going to have the water coming into it. So we've been moving water around in the state for some time. You raise an interesting point about social equity. The municipal water supplies in Southern California are very dependent, in fact, on the water system, which takes water 600 miles from the north of the state down to, the, to where they're using it in Southern California. And that is a very compelling reason to make sure that that water system is working well. I know that in New York City, the, the water supply for New York City comes from the, the Catskills, and I know that they've done some really innovative things to compensate the folks in the Catskills in order to maintain a high-quality water supply for the city of New York. What are the challenges in California in terms of preserving that relationship, and what, what's being done to preserve that relationship? New York's a very interesting example, and they actually have built that relationship. California's built the water system, but not the relationship. So I think you've identified one of, the, one of the biggest challenges. New York City has an unfiltered water supply coming out of the Catskills and into their treatment facilities. When the Catskills water was getting to a poor quality, they realized that either they were going to have to build a new filtration system or they were going to have to do something about their source watersheds. And they decided that it was a lot cheaper to do something about their source watersheds to improve water quality than to build a new filtration system. And in fact, that is what has been the case. They had estimated that it would be up to $8 billion for a new filtration system, whereas it would be maybe $2 billion for preserving water quality. And they've actually spent less than $1.5 billion in their source watersheds, both protecting the area and guiding how it's managed. And that is actually an inspiration for what we're proposing in California, which is to actually 
build a more equitable relationship between the water consumers and beneficiaries and the regions and the communities where the water is collected. That's the focus of work that the Pacific Forest Trust has been doing in getting the state to recognize the value of those source watersheds and that they really are a fundamental part of the water system infrastructure. We haven't had that relationship in the past decades. We defined our water infrastructure as being from the dams on down. However, those dams don't function if the source watersheds aren't delivering the quantity and quality of water that is expected. So we're in the process of gaining formal recognition that, in fact, source watersheds are essential infrastructure. That's a new definition of a relationship, if you will, because once you recognize that it's all part of the fundamental water system, it sets up a framework to create a relationship with the source watersheds and the source watershed communities in a way that is distinct for California, but comparable to the kind of approach that New York has taken. So what are some examples of how you can create a more equitable situation? What could be done or given to the northern landowners in order to compensate them appropriately in a way that would preserve that water supply? There are 7 million acres that constitute five watersheds that are the core of the water supply for the state water system. Those lands are owned about 62% by all the people of this country, which is to say they're public lands managed by the Forest Service or by the Bureau of Land Management. Both of those entities, while they have watershed services in their menu of options of what they're supposed to be providing, haven't really been constituted or budgeted for in such a way that they can, in fact, sustain all those benefits. The 38% of the land that is owned by private owners are not paid at all for watershed services. They are paid for timber production, cattle production, and development. Those are the main ways that those people earn their living. So if we want to encourage those and then gain the kind of commitment from those landowners to manage for watershed services, we can again look to what New York has done, and that is provide funding for managing for the public benefit. Actually, the city of Denver has done some comparable work in this regard too, especially with the Forest Service, which is the manager of their primary watersheds. So the kinds of things that need to be done to put these lands in a more resilient and productive state are things that address that simplification of the forests. So do the kind of vegetation management of thinning out excess stems per acre, reintroducing controlled burn to the landscape where it can be done safely, restoring the kind of natural reservoirs and sponges that are the meadows that are interlaced in the forests throughout this region. Those meadows have a very, very important function, not just because they collect and store water, but also because they are what I like to call the cafeterias for all the wildlife in that area, very, very rich, productive areas. Removing roads and trails from 
being in the center of those meadows or down alongside streams, which can impede water quality and also the function of those meadows. And making sure that the forest landscape isn't fragmented to non-forest uses. Uh, You know, one of the areas that the Forest Service has pointed out in its excellent research is that people like to build homes along water bodies and meadows. Those are very, and lakes, those are very popular places for people to go in and develop in otherwise natural landscapes. And we need to not only help landowners do the kind of restoration work that is needed, but partner with them to ensure those lands are conserved for the long term and dedicated to remaining as well-stewarded forest. Lori, on that point, so the EPA's Waters of the United States rule, I think, is meant to clarify for the first time what exactly are the water bodies that need to be protected. But that seems to be a particularly volatile conversation out West. Can you put that in some context in in relation to what you've already described? That's a really interesting question that has not arisen within the context of this source watershed work. Are you looking at primarily navigable waters or the... Well, it's navigable waters. It's also streams and, you know, rivers and, and, you know, some wetlands. You know, it's a rethink of what we need to do to preserve the water resources that we have. But not everyone is on the same page about how valuable an an undertaking that is. And this contrary, if I can just interrupt, the controversy comes around, I believe, the issue of wetlands and how that impedes upon development and what, what is considered to be a wetlands and what is the Army Corps of Engineers has jurisdiction over. So this definition of what are the waters of the United States has been broadly interpreted to include wetlands. And the development community, I think, is, is pushing back on that definition. So, Well, you have identified why it hasn't arisen in this context because The wetland areas are down in the delta primarily, and we're looking up at the source watersheds where you don't have that same habitat type. That is something where the biggest conflict, I think, tends to arise in two areas. One is the water rights system of first and right, first and law. You know, the idea of the senior water rights holders and then junior water rights going on down from there. And that that certainly is an area of enormous controversy. And one of the issues that has been raised in the water community, so in the water contractor, water agency community, is should they be involved in source water protection, what responsibility do they have there? if, in fact, it doesn't give them more water. There's a real theme of discussion there so that while water agencies and the water contractor community strongly acknowledge the essential role of source watersheds, there's more debate about, well, who should pay for any restoration or conservation of those source watersheds. That's an area of much more controversy than anything relative to the waters of the United States doctrine. And it seems like, as a common sense thing, it seems like a kind of a relatively small fee or tax on the water itself, you know, per gallon kind of thing, could accumulate into a very large fund that could be used to fund that. Is there some magic to this? Why is that concept so controversial? You know, I think that there's a generally accepted principle that beneficiaries should pay for what they benefit from. 
With source watersheds, you do have multiple beneficiaries. You have beneficiaries in the landowners because by doing restoration and conservation, you are enhancing the functionality of that land. You do have beneficiaries in the water consumers. They have much more stability and a strong potential for more water coming through the system. You also have beneficiaries in the hydropower community because the water that flows from the dams generates very significant amounts of electricity and clean and renewable electricity from dams that already exist. You know, you're not talking about putting up new dams that would block rivers, but ones that are there and that are going to stay there. So you do have multiple beneficiaries, and I think you raise an excellent point that all of those parties can share in creating the financing to really put our source watersheds back in a more resilient and productive condition. And financing really is a key concept here. For many people, they may not have followed super closely the passage of the Water Resources Development Act in 2014, also known as WERDA. But for those fanatics who have, tucked into WERDA was a program called WIFIA, the Water Infrastructure Financing and Innovation Act. And this is a new program co-run out of the EPA's Water Finance Office and contributed to by the Corps of Engineers, by the Bureau of Reclamation, but really run out of EPA's Water Finance Office to learn from how big transportation has been being financed across the country for the last couple decades. And that was really a new financing approach called TIFIA, the Transportation Infrastructure Financing and Innovation Act. And it's a way to engage public-private partnerships and private equity, private investment, in advancing these projects that have multiple beneficiaries. And in this case, water infrastructure, the EPA defines source watersheds as part of water system infrastructure. So it's a very powerful new approach to creating the kind of scale of financing to restore and conserve source watersheds. Historically, source watersheds got protected by various bond acts. And California was famous for these bond acts. But they would provide intermittent and random funding across different watersheds at different times. And so they really didn't, they don't have the impact that you need to get these watersheds in a more resilient and functional condition. Because when you treat it as infrastructure, you really look at that project from top to bottom. So from the top of your source watershed down to the dam and say, what do I need to do to get this back in shape? And then what do I need to do to keep it in shape? You know, you couldn't build a dam just saying, oh, gee, I'll, I'll put up a few bricks today and then I'll, maybe I'll pour some concrete in another five years. It just won't happen. You don't get what you're looking for or what your desired outcome is. And so by redefining source watersheds as part of infrastructure and approaching it with a kind of holistic project management approach and providing adequate funding through financing and getting input from all the beneficiary communities, you can really raise the kind of capital you need to. And that's what we're seeking to do here in California. This is fantastic. So where can our listeners go to learn more about the work that you do and how to support it? Well, they can come to our website, www.pacificforest.org. And I strongly encourage them to do that. Sign up for one of our newsletters. Follow us on Twitter. 
those are all ways that they can learn more about what we do. So, Lori, our next three questions are what we call our lightning round questions. We're going to ask you the question, and we want you to say the first thing that pops into your head in response to them. And, you know, to try and make it as uh, encapsulated as possible. (laughs) So, Mike? If you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? It would be that states and nations followed through on the commitment to go carbon neutral and to address climate change. That's a biggie. What one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? They could support the leaders and the organizations that are going to take us through that transformation to a carbon neutral world. If you're successful in the work that you are doing, what do the forests in California look like 30 years from now? Well, the forests in California and in Oregon and Washington, where we look, are conserved as well-managed forests. They are resilient. They provide connected habitat corridors across the landscape. They are sequestering large amounts of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They're teeming with fish and wildlife. They support rural communities with a sustained rural economy that is based on stewarding those forests. And they continue to provide ample, cool, clean water for all of us. Thank you for being so generous with your time today. We really appreciate the work that you do. And thank you for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me on the radio. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio.